Hello, everyone. I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I'm Natasha Smith coming to you from Pagosa Springs, Colorado. We'd like to welcome you to the Ministry Watch podcast. Each week, Ministry Watch brings you news about Christian ministries as well as the latest in charity and philanthropy, news that we examine from a Christian worldview perspective. And our goal is to help us become better stewards of the resources God has entrusted to us. On today's program, the Episcopal Church's embrace of theological liberalism has caused such a steep decline that the denomination's very existence is in question. Also, Jerry Falwell Jr. sues Liberty University. And we have the latest installment in our Generous Living series, a pastor and his family from Texas who live simply, tithe, pay their bills, and give away everything else. Up first today, the story of a controversial Charlotte, North Carolina church that was declared an imminent hazard in order to close because of a COVID outbreak. Now, Warren, we say at the beginning of every program that you live in Charlotte, so I understand that you've been following this story pretty closely. Yeah, I have. The church is called the United House of Prayer for All People. A lot of the mainstream media outlets have called it a Pentecostal church, but I've been following this church for more than 20 years, and the church's theology and practices place it well outside of biblical Christianity. And I'll say more about that in a minute. But the basic facts of this story are that the church hosted more than a thousand people at a week-long event in early October. And since then, the church has seen more than 120 COVID cases and three deaths as a result of the event. But Warren, we've seen other mass gatherings around the country. What was different here? Well, not only did the church meet, but its leadership refused to comply with recommendations for social distancing and wearing masks. The church's leadership didn't respond to media attempts for a response to this story, but the United House of Prayer has always gone its own way, telling its members that the leaders of the church were authoritative in their instructions, and that sometimes went against the local authorities and made the leaders of the church rich in the process. Interesting. Can you say more about that? Yeah, I can. Uh, The Charlotte United House of Prayer Church is a part of a network that was founded in the early 20th century by an immigrant from Cape Verde, and he was known as Sweet Daddy Grace. The churches are typically huge Gothic structures guarded by statues of lions on either side of the entryway. We have several of them in Charlotte, and I can tell you they are really quite imposing structures. Well, you said that they are often described as Pentecostal churches, but that they really are outside of the boundaries of biblical Christianity. Why do you say that? Well, though the church claims to believe in salvation by grace, it became increasingly unclear what grace meant, whether it meant God's grace or sweet daddy grace himself. Disciples would often kneel before sweet daddy grace's portrait and pray for his blessings and protection. Some of his followers believed that he was the oldest man alive. And while sweet daddy grace was alive, by the way, he died in the 1960s, he often referred to his experiences with Jesus during Jesus's life on earth. What? That's definitely very strange. Yeah, it it is. And Sweet Daddy Grace, uh, in fact, did very little to dissuade people from 
holding those beliefs. He reportedly told one congregation, never mind about God. Salvation is by grace only. Grace has given God a vacation. Don't worry about it. If you sin against God, grace can forgive you. But if you sin against grace, God cannot save you. When someone asked grace about his assertions of Godhood, sweet daddy grace responded, I never said I was God, but you can't prove to me that I'm not. (laughs) That is absolutely wild. So what happens next with this situation? Well, the church has so far chosen to comply with the shutdown order. It appears that the severity of the outbreak there at the church was a bit of a humbling experience for the leadership, and they have chosen at least so far not to fight the closure. Our next story concerns Baptist leaders in Georgia. They've placed a Tacoa Conference Center in Tacoa, Georgia, for sale after reporting that it has operated at a loss for the past 20 years. Yeah, the decision to sell the conference center was made back in September, but it's just now becoming public. And Natasha, you mentioned that the conference center has been losing money for the past 20 years, and it's true, it has. But in most of those years, the losses have been fairly small, and the Baptists have always considered that facility to be a part of their ministry, both to churches in the state and to other organizations that use that facility. So they've kind of absorbed the losses. But 20 20 was particularly challenging, of course, and it has been for all of us. The chief operating officer for the Georgia Baptist, his name is David Melber, said that the losses this year were projected to be about $1.1 million, and that number was too big to be sustainable. I understand that for the Baptist to sell this facility would really represent an end of an era. Yeah, it would. I was raised in a Baptist church in the Atlanta area, and Tacoa was uh, always something of a mystical and storied place for a lot of Baptists in Georgia. It was where conferences took place and camps for kids. A lot of you know life-changing experiences happened there. Uh, I've been there a number of times. It's in a, on a beautiful spot on a lake right up in the North Georgia mountains. It was originally built in the 1940s by Christian businessman L.G. Latour. A lot of our listeners may know who Latorno is in part because he was also a prime benefactor of Latorno University in Texas and did a lot with mission aviation uh, in the early days of flying in this country and missionary flying in particular. Now, he wanted this particular facility to be a Christian hotel for Christian people when he built it in the 1940s, and it was that for years. He sold it to the Southern Baptists in the 1960s. I say sold it. He contributed money to the Southern Baptists so they could actually buy the facility from him. That's sort of how generous he was. Uh, But the reality is that the world has really changed since the 1960s, especially when it comes to things like camps and conference centers. A couple of weeks ago, we reported that LifeWay, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention, sold its conference center Ridgecrest in North Carolina. A couple of years earlier, they sold their Glorietta Conference Center in New Mexico. COVID has been a contributor to this shift, of course, but it's also just kind of an evolution in the travel industry. The reality is that 
most of these legacy properties just don't come up to the standards that people have come to expect from conference facilities these days. To prepare for the sale, in fact, the Georgia Baptist did an assessment of the Tacoa facility, and they estimated that it would take more than $8 million to make the repairs and upgrades needed to bring that facility up to current hospitality standards. Warren, before we go to break, a story about dramatic incline in the Episcopal Church. Yeah, a new study uh, out just within the last week or 10 days suggests that the denomination could, in fact, disappear within the next generation if the current trends continue, if it's not able to make some pretty dramatic changes. The church just released its 2019 membership and attendance data, and the Episcopal Church, which was once one of the largest and most influential denominations in the country, is now, according to these most recently released numbers, in an even more rapid decline than it has been for the past couple of decades. And of course, it is also in theological and organizational disorder. What are the specifics? Well, the specifics are these, that the membership in the Episcopal Church has declined by nearly half since the 1960s, from 3.4 million members then. And you got to keep in mind, Natasha, that the population of the country was barely half uh, in 1960 what it is today. And while the population of the U.S. has doubled in size, the size of the Episcopal Church has gone down by about 50% to about 1.8 million in the last year. Well, 1.8 million is still a lot of people. Well, it is, but the reality is that only about 600,000 of those people actually show up for church on a given Sunday. In fact, I've looked at those reports, and it's pretty striking. Some of the churches, especially the ones that are really losing members, might have a couple of hundred people on the payroll and might only have 30 or 40 people showing up for church on a Sunday. And I should add that that number has dropped by more than 2% just in the last year alone. And that 2% number, anywhere between 15 and 2.5% has been the annual decline for the last 20 years or so. And making matters worse, most of the people are far older than the population as a whole. Did this news report cite any cause for this decline? No, it didn't, though critics of the Episcopal Church say that it's really no mystery. The Episcopal Church has been outspoken in its support of liberal theology and liberal political positions, including same-sex marriage, and that has driven away evangelicals from the Episcopal Church for decades. Plus, some of the leaders of the church have publicly rejected core Christian doctrines. One of the former bishops of the Episcopal Church, John Spong, said that it wasn't necessary to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian, for example. Wow. Did the Episcopal Church announce any plans to address that issue? They didn't. Another area where the Episcopal Church has really kind of either tone deaf or has a blind spot, uh, for more than 20 years, they've done what they always do. They say that the numbers do not reflect the true health of the church. In fact, rather than fix the problem, church leaders said that they plan to revamp the report. The annual survey um, that they send out to the local parishes where these numbers come from will now also include narrative questions that allow congregations to identify some less quantifiable ways that they serve their members and their communities. But the Reverend Tom Ferguson, who's the pastor of a large church in Massachusetts, St. John's Episcopal Church, told the Episcopal News Service that statistics like Sunday attendance are still really important and that the church should not use open-ended 
unanswered questions as a way to justify the decline. In fact, uh, Tom Ferguson said this, which I thought was pretty striking. If you have tons of people doing free laundry at your church, that's great. But if you're still losing 25% of your congregation in a few years, you're not a church. You're a laundromat. Well, Warren, we have to take a break, but when we return, Jerry Falwell sues the college his father founded. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host Warren Smith, and we'll be back after this short break. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's SaveTheStorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, let's continue with news that broke late in the week. Uh, Former Liberty University president Jerry Falwell announced this week that he is suing Liberty University, saying the school damaged his reputation after his resignation from the school. Yeah, he is. In fact, I got to say, Natasha, the irony of this situation is almost too much to bear because Falwell resigned in August from the school because of a long series of controversies that he had created, not that the school had created about him. Allegations made by, uh, for example, Falwell's former business partner that he had been involved in a long-standing sexual relationship with both Falwell and his wife, Becky. I should add that the Falwells have denied that story. Uh, Falwell has been placed on leave earlier in the summer after posting a controversial photo of himself on social media. It showed Falwell with his pants unzipped and with his arm around a woman identified as Becky Falwell's assistant, who was also posing, exposing her midriff. In fact, it was the way that Falwell was damaging the school's reputation, not the other way around, that ultimately forced this situation to a head. Well, given that, on what grounds is Falwell suing? Well, in a press release that Falwell released on Thursday, October 29, Falwell alleges that an individual supported by foes of President Donald Trump had made false claims against Falwell. Falwell, you may remember, was one of Donald Trump's earliest and most vocal evangelical supporters. But in that press release, at least, he didn't provide any specifics. Presumably, they'll come out in the lawsuit. Uh, This combative posture, I should add, is a sharp about face for Falwell, uh, who told a Virginia newspaper that he was relieved when he left Liberty. And he, in fact, he quoted uh, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. as saying, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. That, by the way, was one more comment that created controversy for Falwell. Falwell also told that same Virginia newspaper, I've done all I can do at Liberty and I'm ready to move on to something else. 
this has happened for a reason, and the board treated me very, very generously, and I'm very grateful for that. Falwell, in fact, got a reported $10 million settlement from the school when he left. Warren, you have another update uh, for us on a story that you've been following for a while, and that is the story of musician Sean Fucht. Yeah, Christian musician Sean Fucht held a politically charged concert on the National Mall on Sunday night, October 25th. He said his performances, uh, which he's been doing around the country, were a protest against COVID restrictions on churches, though this one in Washington looked a whole lot more like a political rally. Uh, which is not surprising since Fucht ran for Congress himself as a Republican uh, in California earlier this year. He was defeated in the primary. One of the speakers at the event was Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. He said he had just voted to further Barrett's, uh, Judge Amy Coney Barrett's nomination process. He then led the group gathered in prayers for her. And Jensen Franklin, who is also an advisor to Donald Trump uh, and who pastors the free chapel in Georgia, delivered a speech at the event as well. Now, Warren, our next story is is one that, well, I don't really know what to think about it. (laughs) Well, you're right. It's a strange story, uh, but it's one that tells us a lot about the state of our culture today, which is why I wanted to cover it. And here are the basics. A couple of weeks ago, a North Carolina pastor who says he was under the influence of a prescription drug, um, a sleep aid um, called Ambien, but he also admitted that he had had a few uh, alcoholic beverages as well, was sleepwalking, he said, on an airplane in flight, and he urinated on a fellow passenger. It was a flight to, from Las Vegas to Detroit. Oh, stop right there. I could imagine that a lot of our listeners are thinking to themselves, why would we even cover a story like this? Well, that's a good question, and that was my reaction when it happened a couple of weeks ago. In fact, we went a couple of weeks and didn't cover this story, but uh, it was what happened after the event that I think makes this story a little more interesting and maybe worth thinking about. The first thing is that no one released the name of the pastor, even though police were called, he was charged with a misdemeanor, there was uh, a court date set and uh, all kinds of police records. They would not release those records to the public when the plane landed in Detroit. The person was just identified as a well-known pastor from North Carolina. And a lot of people, including journalists, wrote on social media and elsewhere that because this guy was a celebrity pastor, he was getting away with something that a regular citizen wouldn't have gotten away with. That's a very interesting point. Yeah, it is. And so then what happened when this pastor wasn't identified, there was kind of a feeding frenzy on social media to find out who he was. The frenzy forced several well-known North Carolina pastors, including Will Graham, the grandson of Billy Graham, who still works with the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, and J.D. Greer, who's a pastor in Durham, North Carolina, and the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. These guys actually had to issue statements saying that they were weren't the pastor. Uh, It eventually uh, took a news organization filing a Freedom of Information Act to get the identity out of the Detroit Police Department. It turns out the guy is the Reverend Danny Chalmers. He was uh, charged with disorderly conduct. So, Natasha, as you can see, this story has a few twists and turns that in some ways shine a light on our celebrity evangelical culture and also brings to the surface a couple of things that we should always keep in mind. First, uh, someone is always watching, so we need to behave ourselves. And secondly, as my mentor Chuck Colson learned during Watergate, 
The cover-up is always worse than the crime. If you make a mistake, own it, apologize, repent, face the consequences. Otherwise, your mistake could turn into a two-week-long national news story. Wow, well, that is good advice. <laughs> now, we're going to take another break, and when we return, the next segment of our Generous Living series. I'm Natasha Smith with my co-host Warren Smith. More in a moment. Hello, everyone. I'm Brittany with Save the Storks. Save the Storks is a pro-life ministry passionate about inspiring the world to reimagine the pro-life movement by serving and valuing every life. Save the Storks partners with pregnancy centers all across the U.S. to own and operate a stork bus to offer free ultrasounds and pregnancy tests to women in unplanned pregnancies. Stork buses park near college campuses, abortion clinics, shopping centers, and serve rural communities that lack medical care. Save the Storks is pleased to be the sponsor of the Ministry Watch podcast. For more information about our life-saving organization and how we partner with pregnancy resource centers around the country, go to savethestorks.com. That's savethestorks.com. Welcome back. I'm Natasha Smith, along with my co-host, Warren Smith, and you're listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Now, Warren, as I promised before the break, we've got the next segment in our Generous Living series. This week's uh, story is about a Texas pastor and his family. Yeah, uh, when Jimmy and Laura Seibert uh, committed their finances to the Lord very early in their marriage, they really didn't set out to become radical givers. Um, They thought the decisions they made, the sacrifices they embraced, were just a part of following Christ. What were some of those decisions? Well, the first decision that they made as a young couple was to go into ministry. Uh, Jimmy and Laura met as students at Baylor University. They were involved in Campus Crusade for Christ. Uh, They married a year after they met, uh, met in 85, married in 86. Uh, They began working for a church in Waco, Texas, but they also formed a ministry on the side called Antioch Ministries International, which trained and sent missionaries all around the world. In fact, I should add that AMI, is still active and has more than 140 full-time missionaries around the world. But in 1999, Jimmy and Laura left that first church that they were at, Highland Baptist Church, to plant their own church where Jimmy could become the senior pastor, Antioch Community Church. It's also in Waco, Texas, and he served as a senior pastor, and under their leadership, the church has really grown. Now has about 3,500 members, and some people might know a little bit about that church because if you've ever watched HGTV's program Fixer Upper, Chip and Joanna Gaines, go to that church, and occasionally you'll sort of hear about that on, on the program. Well, early in their marriage, as I said, Jimmy and Laura studied Scripture about uh, living life together and what it looked like to store up treasures in heaven. And they said they came across the expression, sell everything or give up everything and follow me, often enough that they thought they should take it seriously. Now, let me pause you there. There's a lot of rich people in the Bible, but Jesus doesn't tell everyone to sell everything. 
Well, you're absolutely right. In fact, uh, some of the richest people uh, are in the Bible, and Jesus never speaks ill of them. Joseph of Arimathea, in fact, was apparently a benefactor of, of Jesus in the New Testament, and we have folks like you know King David and Solomon and others who are apparently very rich people. Uh, and the Seberts acknowledged that, but they also said that they wanted to be willing to follow Jesus, whatever uh, it might cost him and wherever it might lead him and th- them and their family. And that meant for them a few key principles. They were going to live simply, they were going to work diligently, and they were going to give generously. Those were the three key principles that they decided to adopt early in their marriage. And what that over time came to mean to them was this, that they would tithe to their local church. They would support missionaries because obviously they had a heart for that because of the missionary organization that they formed. They would pay their own bills. They would be diligent about not going into debt and making sure that they um, met all of their own financial obligations. And then they would give the rest away. So does that mean no savings accounts or retirement funds or college funds? I mean, I I understand that they have four children. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that is, in fact, exactly what it means for them. They said that getting their families to buy into what they were doing was one of the hardest parts of this commitment. Um, But they also committed to living without debt. If the family needed anything and they didn't have the money, they would pray about it and work to earn the money to get what they needed. Jimmy also said something that I thought was pretty profound. We decided early on that if something didn't get provided for, we're not going to blame God or anyone else. We're going to be willing to live with the consequences of our decisions to live radically. Wow. I love that. That's such a challenging story. And I understand that you have some videos to go along with it. Yeah, we do. Uh, Just go to the Ministry Watch website, and that story is on the front page. We have a link to in the story to an interview with Jimmy and Laura Siebert that is embedded in the story itself. That's awesome. Now, Warren, we have to uh, bring our time together to a close. But before we go, I know that you have an update about Ministry Watch for us. Yeah, I do. Um, Something I wanted to share with our listeners. For more than 20 years, Ministry Watch has been rating the financial efficiency of Christian ministries. In the early days, we had a few hundred ministries in our database, so the ratings compared uh, one ministry to all of the other ministries in the database. The top ministries got five stars, and the bottom ministries got one star. And that worked for many, many years, but as our database grew, it became obvious that some ministries that were doing really good work would get a low rating for reasons that were largely beyond their control. Can you give me an example of that? Yeah, I think so. Um, Our ratings reward organizations that spend the most money on ministry. So if you take in $100 and you spend $99 on ministry, you're going to get a very high rating from us. But some ministries like camps or colleges, for example, have to spend money on buildings and other assets before they can actually serve people. Ministries like that with lots of assets acquired over many years, uh, even if they are using those assets fully and efficiently, couldn't really compare with, say, a relief and development ministry that raises money to deal with a natural disaster and then immediately spends that money uh, to serve people who have been victimized by that natural disaster. That definitely makes sense. So what is the solution? 
the solution, we think, is just to compare like ministries. We now only compare ministries with other ministries doing similar work. But before we could do that, we needed to add a bunch of ministries to our database. So that's what we've been doing over the course of the past year. Our database has grown from about 450 ministries to about 650 ministries, and now we've got enough ministries in every category to make those kinds of comparisons possible. Wow, that sounds amazing. So what should our listeners do about that? Well, you can check out your favorite ministry on our website. Just go to ministrywatch.com and hit the bright red button on the upper left-hand side of the page. That'll take you directly to the database. The ratings for the most of the ministries in the database didn't change, but the ratings did change for nearly a third of the ministries. So use the search engine, find your favorite ministry, and see how they rank. And by the way, if you don't find your favorite ministry there, send me an email and we'll look into it. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. Uh, Anything else before we go? Well, one more thing. Regular listeners to the podcast know that through the months of September and October, we were offering a copy of my new book, Faith-Based Fraud, to anyone who made a donation of any size to Ministry Watch. I just wanted to make sure everyone knew that that offer ends on Saturday, October 31st, in part because I'm glad to say we're almost out of books again, and we don't plan to reprint any more books at least until after the first of the year. So if you want to get a copy of Faith-Based Fraud, you need to act before Saturday, October 31st. You can just go to the ministrywatch.com website and hit the donate button at the top of the page. The producers for today's program are Rich Rosal and Steve Gandy. We get database and other technical support from Kathy Guttard, Stephen DeBerry, and Casey Suddeth. Writers who contributed to today's program include Yonat Shimron, Adele Banks, Ann Stike, Warren Smith, and Christina Darnell. I'm Natasha Smith in Pagosa Springs, Colorado. And I'm Warren Smith in Charlotte, North Carolina. And you've been listening to the Ministry Watch podcast. Until next time, may God bless you. Thank you.